Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hi, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. I am sitting here on Tuesday afternoon recording the program. So although we have six votes from Dixon Notch uh, up in New Hampshire, we don't yet have results from that contest. So tomorrow at this time, we're either going to have sort of a primary or we're going to have no primary whatsoever. Now, I started thinking, how could we have had a better outcome? In other words, less Donald Trump and maybe even somebody other than Donald Trump. And I think part of the problem was what the other candidates were saying and the other candidates, to be honest, wrong people, wrong message. What kind of person could have beaten Donald Trump? I think they should have gotten another Donald Trump. They should have gotten a younger, smarter, better, more charismatic billionaire, a real billionaire, someone who could have kind of out-egoed Trump, someone who could have mocked him, made fun of him, and be entertaining. That's what the Republican Party wants. It's not a political party. They don't care about policy. They want to be entertained. They want someone to be angry on their behalf. So they should have gotten somebody like that, maybe a CEO of a startup company or a CEO of a basketball team, something like that. You are never going to beat Donald Trump, with, at least in the Republican Party, with a traditional boring politician. And of course, you were really never going to beat him so long as you were commiserating with him about getting indicted, so long as you were saying, I'm going to vote for him in the end. That's loser talk. And if you had someone who had the nerve to say, I don't feel sorry for this guy, only losers get indicted or something like that, I think it would have been more fun at least. And he might have made some headway. Donald Trump doesn't do well with strong people. He does great with weak people where he can perceive some flaw, some vulnerability, but he doesn't do well when somebody bigger comes along and punches him in the nose. So I really think they had the wrong person and definitely had the wrong message. So we're going to stumble our way, I think, through the remainder of the primary season. We're going to have a couple trials and now we're going to get to see the test. The test is... Republicans, a lot of them, said they would not vote for Donald Trump if he was convicted of something. Well, I think there's a better than 50-50 chance he will be convicted of something. And let's see how many of them still vote for him anyway. I suspect an awful lot will, because it's a cult. It's a fascist cult. And they don't take a conviction as uh, a true reflection of the justice system, just like they don't take election results as a true reflection of our political system. These people are in the cult and they're in deep. So I think the rest of us are just going to have to turn out and beat them uh, in a regular old election where you have to get turnout, you have to persuade the persuadables, and you have to give the Republicans on the other side enough reason, if not to vote for somebody else, maybe just to stay home because their candidate is such a loser. 
So that's kind of what's going on in politics. Meanwhile, we have a budget deal that's going to keep the government open through early March, but we do not have a supplemental bill. And today we heard from the White House and we're hearing from Democrats on the Hill that Ukraine is down to only weeks, weeks of enough material, enough ammunition to keep them going. It's preposterous that a great power should behave like this. But of course, we're behaving like this because the Republicans in the House behave this way. They're totally unreliable. They're totally reckless with the American national security system and with our allies. So this is where we find ourselves. Lastly, the war. It's very interesting. What is happening is much of what I predicted, namely that the Israeli people have had enough. They see that Hamas has been mostly eliminated. They don't think you can kill every last terrorist. And they desperately want the hostages home. And so you're beginning to see mass demonstrations in Israel. They even barged into the Knesset the other day, demanding that there be some kind of effort on the peace front, that they get the hostages home, and that they then go forward with the rest of their lives. And you can understand why. It's not clear at all that every additional day is bringing any more security benefits to Israel. Yesterday, which was Monday, as we record this, they lost 24 members of the IDF. For a country as small as Israel, that's a huge number of people. So we'll see whether a combination of internal pressure, as well as pressure from the White House and from the other Arab states, can give Bibi a shove um, before he gets shoved off the stage altogether. And that would certainly be nice if we brought this horrible, horrible war to some kind of conclusion. I am delighted to welcome as a sponsor to the show, Miracle Made. Are you really sick of dirty, hot, wrinkly sheets? I am. So what if you got a beautiful sheet, whatever color you wanted, it was cool, it was wrinkle-free, you don't have all your pet hair sticking to it? Well, that is what Miracle Made sheets will do for you. They are self-cleaning and self-cooling thanks to silver-infused sheets inspired by NASA, of all people. It cuts down on the odors, kills 99% of bacteria, and keeps them cleaner three times longer than any other sheets. I ordered a dark blue that is beautiful, but it comes in a whole array of colors. You will sleep well, you'll sleep cooler, and you'll feel better in the morning when you wake up. So how do you get these fabulous sheets? Go to trymiracle.com slash greenroom to try Miracle Made Sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save 40% off. And if you use our promo greenroom at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in the product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a free refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash greenroom and use the code greenroom to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40%. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash greenroom to treat yourself. 
Thank you, Miracle Maid, for sponsoring this episode. You can also find the link in our show notes. We are delighted this week to have with us Ben Ginsburg. He is a longtime Republican lawyer who was involved in many election disputes over his long legal career, including Bush v. Gore. He is now a strong advocate of democracy, of the rule of law, and of measures that make sure our vote counts and that all the votes get counted. So without further ado, I am very happy to welcome to the show, Ben Ginsburg. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you. Nice to be here. It is lovely to have you. So in researching your background for the show, I found out that you were a reporter for a number of years. What do you think that taught you or what do you think that helped you do now that you're a world-renowned lawyer? <laughs> oh, many, many things. It was, uh, they, were, they were five really well-spent years. Um, it got me into local communities. I was sort of a uh, child of the, of the big northeastern suburbs. Right. And uh, this got me into to the real America and uh, really opened up my eyes about people and their needs and desires and hopes and dreams. Taught me to write fast, but that's more mechanical. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I think it does also help because you're one of those lawyers people go to to speak English to ordinary people as opposed to legalese. So it probably helped you uh, in that regard a little bit. I also want to go back to Bush v. Gore. Tell us a little bit about what you did there and whether you feel the same way about the case looking back now as you did at the time. Well, I was counsel to the campaign. So in the lead up to every election night, you sort of prepare for recounts by collecting the laws in various states. Right. Um, so we, we had gone through that. I mean, the day before the election, uh, we all the, the legal team in Austin had gone out to lunch because, frankly, on the day before the election, people stop asking lawyers much of anything. So we were free. And at that lunch, we were talking about lawyers' fantasies, which is not an oxymoron, by the way. And um, <clears throat> we talked about walking up the steps of the Supreme Court to argue a case for a client, just as a, a lawyer's dream anytime. Right. And um, then about somebody asked about the possibility of a presidential recount. And as somebody who had done dozens of congressional and local recounts, I sort of pounded my fist on the table and said, that'll never happen. The odds of that happening will never come to pass. And um, so you can be pretty wrong about those things. And what that means is when things got knotted up on election night, it was kind of a gut punch, punch to the stomach that, holy cow, here's this thing we've thought about in the abstract is actually here. So I uh, got on a plane the next morning, headed to lovely Tallahassee for the next 36 days. And, uh, you know, the, the rest is history. Exactly. Looking, looking back on the case, I think it was such a unique circumstance. And the chances for chaos were so great. And the Florida Supreme Court, um, I, 
thought at the time and still do, was acting true to their partisan stripes, but not with the law of either Florida or the, or the United States was, that it was the proper decision. And it did help to, to um, avoid a really chaotic time. When you think back upon that, imagine now, because we've gone through 2000, if Al Gore had not conceded, um, what do you think, how do you think things would have played out? Do you think there would have been objections on the House floor and on in the joint session? Have you ever kind of rolled that back to think um, whether you would have worn, wound up in the same place that we did on January 6th? Um, you know, I think it was a really different era. And I think Al Gore deserves a huge amount of credit for the way he handled uh, that situation. And I you know, can't imagine anything more difficult, tougher personally for someone to do uh, what he did. But I also know that if the count had flipped somehow, George W. Bush would have conceded the election. I truly believe that. Uh, in the best interests of the country. We are clearly in a different time after 2020 and could be in, in 2024. Um, uh, so I, I actually think that things would have played out as they did in 2020 with some hard feelings by partisans on both sides for a long time, totally understandable. But without the disruption or really attempt to demolish basic American institution. Yeah, it is interesting. I don't think you would have found partisans on either side in Congress who would deliberately try to raise bogus objections or try to incite a mob. I mean, we've come so far in a very negative way since those days. It looks almost, I don't know, antiquated, quaint. Um, yeah, I, I, wouldn't go, I wouldn't go quite that far because... I think we saw, we were worried about it in 2000. It certainly happened in 2004. The Democrats filed frivolous objections to the 2004 election. It happened again in 2016 with, uh, with a few members. I mean, Jill Stein filed bogus recounts at the end of November that Hillary Clinton joined. And so it's not that the the... It's not that the possibility of both sides behaving badly doesn't exist. Looking back on the Supreme Court ruling, which they tried very hard to limit to that case, is there anything that the Supreme Court did there? And I'll give a nod to the independent uh, legislative um, doctrine that gives you pause now that you worry about, you know, I wish they hadn't gone there, or I wonder if this Supreme Court would pull something out of the hat um, in a way we didn't intend, or perhaps we just never thought we'd have to face again. Well, I think they did limit it to just that individual case. So I'm not not necessarily had to grapple with that question in in any direct way. I do think that the equal protection finding is an important finding in terms of elections. And I have always thought that there could be an instance where a claim of equal protection um, takes on a great deal of meaning in a post-election challenge. 
and explain to the audience how that the the um, equal protection claim play, played out in that instance in terms of the way the ballots were counted and reviewed and so on. Well, it was it was a matter of the Florida Supreme Court making a decision that was not grounded in state law. And the basic principle that all the votes in a jurisdiction should be treated the same way. What the Florida Supreme Court tried to do is pull out um, a certain category or two of votes uh, that would have been most helpful to, to Al Gore. But the, the larger principle of equal protection that does give me pause is that there is at least a principle in that case that uh, votes should be treated similarly. And where can you see that going awry? Um, would it be in late, um, you know, received ballots? Would it be in some other context? And what's the scenario that would be questionable? Um, well, there are 10,000 separate jurisdictions responsible for the casting and counting of ballots in America. And it is totally conceivable that not each one would handle them the same way. And so uh, it would have to be deeply researched, but I think that could be true. Um, I think a second scenario that you may not like as much is what happens if a presidential candidate is only on the ballot for some voters to vote for, but not all voters to vote for. And could that find its way back to to Bush versus Gore. Fascinating. Do you remember when you were a kid and you had cold cereal for breakfast and then you got down to the bottom and it was just that wonderfully flavored milk and you could drink that down? Oh, I used to love that. Now, do I eat cereal now? Not really, because if you look at the box of most cereals, it's filled with sugar, it's filled with carbs. Who can eat that way when you're an adult? But ah, I got something for you. You can get Magic Spoon. I recommend the variety pack. It comes in four flavors, fruity, frosty, peanut butter, cocoa. I am a peanut butter lover from way back when. And the cereal will come right to you. It has zero zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four or five grams of net carbs. That's only 140 calories a serving. It's high protein, zero sugar. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free. So how do you get this great product? Go to magicspoon.com slash greenroom to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code GREENROOM at the checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, start this year off right with a delicious bowl of high-protein cereal at magicspoon.com slash greenroom and use the code GREENROOM to save $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. And remember, you can find the link in the show notes.
Well, you have deftly brought us up to the present. Um, and as we speak, um, the uh, Supreme Court, it looks like, is going to have to rule. In fact, uh, briefs are due in a week or so, I think, um, on the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which on its face seems to disqualify people from holding federal office if you have participated or given aid to those who have participated in an insurrection. This was a post Civil War uh, Amendment, and this is one provision. Where do you think it should come out, and what do you think the Supreme Court is actually going to do? Well, I think the most important thing for the Supreme Court to do is to deal with the issue. Um, I, I Look, I, I have read the arguments that both Trump should be disqualified and Trump should not be disqualified. I think what is most important is for the court to deal with the issue so that there is a uniform ruling. Um, I think the worst case scenario is that issue not being resolved on January 6th when the Electoral College votes are open. Because I can see the possibility uh, in that instance, despite Electoral Count Act reforms that um, objections to that election could be filed uh, if there is a lack of uniformity in in the country. In other words, challenging the qualifications. Got it. So the Supreme Court, for example, could try to kick the ball, um, the can down the road. They could say, well, this is just uh, having to do with primaries, so we don't get involved. Or they could say, well, we're not going to get involved um, unless um, we get to the stage of the objections in Congress, which you were just analogizing to. But that really would create all kinds of chaos. Um, Is it more likely than not that the Supreme Court will say, you know, mumble, mumble, something about Congress should need to come up with some uniform rules, mumble, mumble, political question, and say he should be on the ballot and Congress should have to deal with this if we want to start excluding candidates. Is that a likely outcome? You know, I think it is, but I do think they have to provide some clarity. seems to me that the worst of all worlds is states resolving the question of qualifications differently. States do under Article One, Section 5, have the authority to set the time, place, and manner of their elections, so that I think states do have the authority to make those determinations, but that the Supreme Court also has the authority to rule on something like insurrection. Um, uh, they, they may choose to put something of a definition around what insurrection is. In other words, Maybe it's not so self-executing. And the definition could be uh, impeachment and conviction by Congress or uh, a criminal conviction uh, where where a court has actually found insurrection in a way that provides full due process rights, which I think Colorado did not do. I think the least likely option is the Supreme Court says, yes, there was a insurrection. He participated and he should be excluded. I don't think that's happening, right? (laughs) No, I don't think that's happening. I I do think that there is a danger, though, that I think they'll definitely should avoid and I hope want to avoid. 
which is the definition of someone participating in insurrection is left up uh, in a very discretionary way to different states and different partisan actors. That I think that's kind of the worst of all worlds because, because I think you can pretty much rest assured that if Trump is bounced off the ballot for, for participating in an insurrection, there will be some sort of uh, count that Joe Biden was guilty of an insurrection and he's knocked off the ballot. Right. And then you have chaos, which is what we're getting now, where some states are saying he should be off the ballot. Some states are saying he should be on the ballot. So that seems like a um, poor way to resolve it, to have 50 different jurisdictions with different rules and different people making these decisions, um, as opposed to at least some uniformity. Right. Um, And only the court at this point can step in and do that. Right. The other issue that will soon wind its way to the Supreme Court, and I don't know if they've actually filed for cert yet, but that is the absolute immunity defense that Trump has raised in, oh, he, we haven't had it because the D.C. Circuit has yet to rule. Um, Although it's been actually a few days, I would have thought they had the opinion written in in their back pocket by now. But um, we're talking, of course, about the D.C. January 6th case in which Judge Chutkin, the district court judge, ruled that, no, you don't have absolute immunity to commit crimes while you're in office. We don't have kings around here. Um, And that's not what the Constitution says. And that's not the system of government um, that we're supposed to have. Um, Trump didn't like that, of course, took it up to the D.C. Circuit. And they had an oral argument that I think if you were the lawyer for Trump, you would say did not go well. Um, And they seemed particularly, you know, there's hot benches and there's burning benches. Um, This crew of justices or judges in particular, um, one of them um, was uh, Florence Pan, was extremely skeptical, shall we say, about the notion that presidents can commit crimes willy-nilly. Um, where do you think the panel is going to come out? Do you think there will be a unbunk review of that? And then what happens when it goes to the Supremes? Um, I think that the court is not going to give blanket immunity to a president to commit any crime or have his opponents knocked off by SEAL Team 6. Uh, I find that an unlikely and if it came to pass, really disturbing outcome. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure Trump's lawyers will request an en banc review. Uh, Whether they get it or not is something else. And I think the Supreme Court will move fairly expeditiously. I mean, this is a very non-judicial answer, but it would kind of make sense politically for the Supreme Court to pair not granting Trump immunity with also allowing them on the ballot. And that, I think, is a fairly strong case for we're calling balls and strikes here. We're not putting our thumb on the scales politically. 
And that's what I and a number of other people have reached because, of course, the Supreme Court is not held in high regard these days. Um, and right now it's generally Democrats who hold them in low regard. Um, but should they begin um, putting what appears to the average person, their finger on the scale one way or the other, um, they'll be back in the soup. And despite, I think, um, their um, very robust defense of their behavior, I don't think most of the justices want to be front and center in who wins the next presidential election. Is that kind of your take as well? Yes. I mean, I think getting stuck uh, in, in really putting their thumbs on the scale in this polarized environment is not good for the country and it's not good for them. I mean, let yeah. the voters decide would be kind of a quaint notion on the way to go about it. Now, even if he doesn't win on absolute immunity, and I'm a little surprised he didn't um, raise this in the alternative, maybe it's a stalling tactic, um, but there would be an argument that there's qualified immunity, that so long as he was acting um, within the outer perimeter of his duties, he is somehow exempt from criminal law. That's kind of the civil statute that we, or the civil concept that we've seen kicked around. Do you think that's got to get litigated? And how does that come in? Do we start all over again with Judge Chutkin on a qualified immunity argument? Or at some, or will this panel at the D.C. Circuit or the Supreme Court take that at the same time to expeditiously settle both sorts of immunity claims? Well, again, they certainly have it in their power to do that. And um, not allowing a sort of, um, second bite at the apple on the immunity question uh, would would certainly be the judicially economical um, way to proceed. So I would I would sort of think they do that. You know, every time talk about Trump and qualified immunity and is he acting within the scope of the office of the president or is he acting beyond that? Um, I, I, I think back for something I thought I would never ever see in my lifetime, which is a political convention being held on the White House grounds, because uh, as a as a lawyer growing up, having to deal with those issues, you were very, very careful to not mix the political and the official, especially in the sanctum of the White House. Well, you know, in Trump world, that distinction was kind of lost. And the way they're throwing around these immunity issues just kind of reminds me of that, and I think would provide a cautionary note to a court. Again, even if it's not a, uh, a legal matter, it certainly is uh, taking, taking account of public actions. Fair enough. Last uh, year, um Maybe it was the year before. They run together now. Um, we had some amendments to the Electoral Count Act, and that's the statute that kind of governs the nuts and bolts of opening the electoral ballots, raising objections to them, and all the rest. How much do you think that fixed um, some of the most obvious loopholes or um, holes? And how much do you still worry that a determined candidate and campaign um, will drive us right back into this very contentious um, sort of election denial um, that we see played out on the, the floor of the joint session? The Electoral Count Reform Act fixed 
many of the holes that really were caused by being an antiquated statute from the 1880s. I mean, just cleaning up the language to make it sort of precise in contemporary terms uh, was was very important. And then a number of the provisions were very important. As I think we saw uh, in 2021, uh, lawyers can take all sorts of things that you thought were settled law, pound the table really loudly, and turn it into, well, a full-scale riot in the Capitol. Uh, and a lot of legal actions that ultimately were not successful, but have certainly continued to stir things up with a third of the country not really having faith in the credibility of election results. So the ECRA did a terrific job, I think, of going after the known problems but, you know, the puckish sense of humor of lawyers can always find new ones. That's true. Um, for example, it raised the number of people it takes to object to um, a electoral slate. It made clear that um, you have to have um, a certification, um, a single certification in the state, and that there's a procedure for taking that to federal court. But as we have found out, those things are not self-executing. Um, people of good faith have to apply them and then agree to be bound by them as opposed to beckoning in the mob from outside. So um, I tend to agree that I think um, we're not out of the woods yet. Let me flip the script a little bit. We've heard a lot about fraud, about voting reform, about voting suppression. As we sit here, how confident are you in the machinery of elections in all of these jurisdictions to count votes accurately and to determine as well as the human mind can do who won an election, even when it's very, very close? I'm, I'm quite confident. And among the things I did when I was in practice was election day operations, which means we set up uh, operations to look for fraud and irregularities in elections. It, it, it's an incredibly important thing for the political parties to do, to catch something that goes wrong, and then if they don't catch anything that goes wrong, to give credibility to the election results. So I come at your question from the perspective of spending a lot of years looking at elections, doing recounts, which is where you kick open the hood and uh, really look at the machinery of elections. So you need to be honest about what's been found in all those years. The 40 years that I was doing it, 2020, when Trump had a 50,000-person poll watcher army that presumably would have caught any of those things, because I'm sure they were highly trained and really professional. Uh, and there is no substantive evidence of, of fraud that would turn the outcome of an election. To be sure, there are 10,000 jurisdictions, so inconsistencies. To be sure, we make it a very human process with up to a million volunteers. It, it, it is not a system built for absolute precision. But to be clear, there is no evidence of systemic fraud that cast doubt on the results of an election. So I think the mechanics 
of how we count and cast ballots can always be improved, especially with new technologies, but they are solid for providing accurate results of elections. And if it's close and if there are doubts, there are mechanisms for litigating that that work. Voting reform uh, has not gotten through, really, aside from the uh, Electoral Count Act uh, reforms in any fashion. And so we still have aspects of the voting that many people don't like. Um, we still have very long lines, for example, in jurisdictions which are tend to be poor um, and um, perhaps uh, more uh, populated by people of color. We have a whole mishmash of rules about whether we get ballots um, on the day of the election, whether they have to be mailed on the day of the election, received on the day of the election. Um, Many people like the convenience now, particularly post-COVID, of um, the voting by mail without excuse. It's not exactly uniform everywhere. If you could write the perfect voting rights reform, what would you put in it? Um, I would put in a combination of things that uh, provide balance in terms of um, in, in, in terms of being able to validate the accuracies of elections with ample opportunities to vote. Um, you know, I think uh, I would include voter ID which I don't believe is discriminatory, and to the extent it is, you can provide free ID for people. I would be, uh, I would probably get rid of signature matches and instead have it digital matches. I would um, uh, really open up opportunities for vote to to vote. I think vote by mail is is been proven safe and effective. Uh, I think even Republicans are going to embrace vote by mail because it's such a um, incomprehensible political strategy to tell the older of the two parties that people shouldn't vote by mail. Um, I would require that uh, ballots get counted uh, on Election Day. I mean, I, I would not allow absentee ballots to come in after Election Day, but I would move forward the number of days that people can vote, because I think not having prompt election results, albeit unofficial election results, uh, is sort of a petri dish for for problems to arise. Um, I, I push back a little bit on what you said about long lines, actually. Um, I was co-chair of the Presidential Commission on Election Administration, appointed by President Obama after the 2012 elections to attack the long line problem? We found a few things. Um, number one, if there is a polling place with long lines, it is normally the only polling place with long lines. In other words, if you go to the voting locations around it, they don't have long lines. It's because election administrators don't always have adequate facilities so that places get jammed up. Um, and they don't always allocate their equipment to take into account the precincts that have actually been growing lately. Uh, and often the long lines phenomenon is caused by local election administrators. I mean, the resources that are devoted to election machinery 
by and large, is a county decision. There's money from the state, but it's allocated by the counties. And so it's not the politically tinged um, problem that we might have thought after the 2012 election, after actually studying. And it would seem that if you open up opportunities to vote before Election Day, you decrease the potential for lines. And if we adequately fund election machinery and equipment and the rest, um, that also would help solve the problem. Um, So it does seem that um, when we have these incidents, um, there are relatively easy, non-political, non-partisan, rather, uh, ways to, to solve the problem. Yo. Yo. Two. Two. Usted. Usted. Yo. Yo. Two. Two. Usted. Usted. Two. Eres Ana. Tu eres Ana. Yo soy el señor Paz. Usted. One of my great talents is not learning a new language. But I will tell you, there is something that's going to make it exceedingly easy. Even I can do it. And if you want to learn a new language, either because it's on your bucket list or maybe you have to because of your job, there is something for you and it's called Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel. It's a science-backed language learning app that actually works. It's easy to use. It plays like a game. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for some private tutor or waste hours on apps that don't help you speak. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons, and I've taken a bunch of them, are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. It's designed by real people for real conversations with tips and tools that are approachable, accessible, and rooted in real-life situations delivered with conversation-based teaching. I know I did it, and it's fun. It's like playing a game on your phone. And it is so convenient, you can do it whenever you want. So how do you get this? Well, you can get it from, on a special deal from Babbel. For a limited time, for our listeners right now, you get 55% off your Babbel subscription. But only for listeners at babbel.com slash greenroom. Get your 55% off at babbel.com slash greenroom spelled b-a-b-b-e-l dot com slash greenroom rules and restrictions may apply you can also start your language adventures with the link in the show notes so we have donald trump who continues to deny um falsely of course that he lost the election And he's already beginning to make noises that Democrats are registering illegal aliens, illegal immigrants to vote, which sounds like he's setting the the ground once again to make claims about the election. What do you think we can be doing? What do you think we should be doing? And we, I really mean collectively, media, administrators, parties, um, to prevent a replay of 2020 uh, and 2024. Now, 
the obvious one would be for Republicans not to elect him um, as their nominee. But uh, barring a um, really epiphany by the Republican Party of today, um, what do you think we should be doing? I think that falls into a couple of different buckets. Um, I think the the way you describe it, a lot of that falls to local election officials to make their process transparent, to be sure that to the extent anyone in their communities wants to learn about the election process, they're able to do it, to figure out rational ways to let observers into the polling place. You know, if you see it, stop it. Uh, there are if, if there's actually any evidence of illegal voters, then that needs to come forward as opposed to the sort of um, blunderbuss charges of it. Uh, look, I, I think that a lot of the ability of those charges to take root stem from the fact that we are such a polarized country and the polls are not talking to each other. Um, you know, your Washington Post, as well as many other media operations, have been calling out the falsities, fighting disinformation as vociferously as they can. You have to take account of the fact it's made no difference, that you have more, if not less, uh, people thinking that elections aren't reliable. And so there's been uh, a, a reluctance to like fully engage with the part of that 33% that might listen to reason. Uh, they've been just, I think, lacking efforts in that. Um, and in terms of how you actually deal with the problem, I think it's important to look at it as a community by community solution as opposed to a national solution. The national solution. Um, including, unfortunately, journalism, is not resonating on a local level. And I think the key to this is understanding what goes on in specific contentious jurisdictions. Um, my Democratic colleague, Bob Bauer, and I have a program called The Pillars of the Community, in which we're going into the most contentious election jurisdictions in the country, trying to find the pillars of the community across the political spectrum, who non-political figures, um, but who are community leaders and realize what's good for their local communities is peace and prosperity and not turmoil, and have them sit down with their local election administrators, ask all the questions they want, kick the tires of the election mechanism, and be able to verify as community leaders not who won and lost the election, but that the way we tabulate votes, the casting and certification of ballots is accurate and reliable. But I think you can do that on a community by community basis, as opposed to thinking that uh, national voices are gonna persuade local contentious communities or otherwise. That's fascinating. What? Um, states have you gone into? And what's been the reaction um, when you got there? Have people, have they said, like, why are you talking to us? Or have people embraced this? Have people been enthusiastic about this? Um, so people are very enthusiastic about the concept. We've gone into the states you would suspect 
most contentious election jurisdictions that had uh, the biggest problems in 2020 and were threatened in 2022, although that was a sort of a much, that was a reasonable election, really. Um, and they, people have pride in their communities and want their communities to work in ways that the national debate is just really far more, far more poisonous. And so the concept uh, has been warmly embraced. Of course, uh, actually, this is a, a project that culminates next fall and not now. And so uh, finding the right people in all those communities, keeping them engaged, uh, getting them uh, as educated as they want to be about the election system is the task at hand. Ben, tell the audience if they want to participate in this, how they do that. We'll put that in the show notes. What's the website they go to or the organization they look for if they want to perhaps be one of these people, a validator at a community level? Um, it would be great if they emailed you with. Um, <laughs> there we go. Our, our, ours is ours is basically a pretty under the radar Got program it. at this stage that uh, we're working with uh, people in the communities to identify the people in the communities, and that's our method going about it. We don't mean this as a widespread public-facing campaign at this stage, trying to convince the whole community, the election process. There are many groups and election officials taking on that task. This is a program to be sure that the election officials in the most contentious jurisdiction have support from community leaders across the ideological spectrum. And the, the inspiration for the program was really that we heard from those election administrators that they kind of felt alone flapping on a breeze in a, in a branch on a wobbly tree. Well, that's perhaps a good place to end. Um, we do have people who, if they're paid for these jobs, and I'm paid a lot, and many of them are volunteers, they face all kinds of ridiculous behavior, threats, and um, accusations. And um, unfortunately, that creates a lot of turnover um, each election, and you lose that kind of institutional knowledge. Um, what would you say to people who want to be involved to say, hey, I can be an election um, volunteer? What do they do? How can they help? And how can they make sure that the counting, as you say, is verifiable, transparent? What do people have to do? There are a couple of different types of positions. One is uh, actually working for the election administration, uh, folks who do need volunteers to help them staff the polls. And that takes place um, through their, their local election administration office. The second are poll watchers, which are more, uh, which really go through the parties and the candidates. Very important for parties and candidates to have their people in the polling places to be sure that the voting process goes smoothly, that uh, only eligible voters can vote, but that they're eligible, they can vote without getting hassled. So uh, that takes place. It's different. It's a little bit different in every jurisdiction, but either through a campaign or a political party locally. Terrific. 
are you optimistic that we're going to have a clean, fair, peaceful election this time? Or is that chapter yet to be written? Uh, I am very optimistic that it will be an accurately tabulated election. Uh, The background noise around that and charges and allegations, as meritless as they may be, made for political, uh, perceived political advantage, yeah, not so sure about. Oh, on that sure, you know. Well, thank you, Ben. Um, Thanks for being here. Thanks for what you're doing. And uh, at or just after the election, we'll have you back and you can tell us uh, how things went. Great. Thanks for having me, Jen. And that was Ben Ginsburg. Well, I take away from that a couple things. One, the problem is not so much the machinery or even the rules. The problem is the people. And so long as we have a Republican Party that has checked out of democracy, that thinks this is a game of some type where the point is to make sure only your people get to vote and the other people, the wrong people, don't vote. As long as they take a cavalier attitude towards the truth and reality, we're going to have very disputed elections for the foreseeable future. Uh, That is a tragedy um, that is a legacy of Donald Trump that will unfortunately not go away, even if he's defeated. And I think we're going to have to look at not only the political parties, but other aspects of society to educate people um, that this is a bad thing. It's bad when half the people insist that their guy didn't win. It's bad when we have people resorting to violence. And we see, at least according to polls, more and more people inclined to take non-democratic, lowercase d, measures to make sure their side wins. And that is the tragedy of um, losing one's democracy. The great innovation of democracy is we don't stand there shooting at one another and punching it out to determine who has power. We have elections. And then at the end, everyone agrees who won and who lost, and you go on. And that seems almost antiquated right now because we have been through this and we continue to be in a period of extreme I don't want to say polarization because that assumes both sides are at fault. And it's really one party that's gone off the edge. It's really the Republican Party that has now decided to go to war with elections and democracy. And that's going to have to change before we get done with all of this election denial, election controversy and election violence. And until that party loses, loses again and again, this is going to be with us. And I would commend to you a speech that Liz Cheney gave in Atlanta on Martin Luther King Day. And as she joked, she never thought she would be in that church, um, following Ben Stiller, by the way. But there she was, and she got several standing ovations. And she was basically making the plea to her own party for belief in the rule of law, in truth, and really appealing also to Christians that if they want to be truly religious people, they should be advocates of truth, they should be good citizens, and that they shouldn't really lionize and deify a figure, particularly a figure as obnoxious as Donald Trump. It was quite a speech, and uh, I commend you all to take a listen to that or to view it. 
If you like this program and you like our other programs, please tell your friends. They can get Jen Rubin's Green Room on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.